your sovereign power. And so we thank you for the fact that we are here. We thank you that you've renewed our wills to love you and love your people and to want to be together with our brothers and sisters. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. As we, uh, as we go through this final chapter in the book that we've been studying, and as we look ahead to the, to the worship service as a whole, we thank you for these means of growing in grace, and we ask, Lord, that you would do just that in our lives. So open our ears and our hearts. Help us to consider the things that you would have for us and to test ourselves against them to the extent that they reflect your word, which is perfect. We thank you for these great gifts, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are on. Uh, this is week 14 of our study of this book by Paul Tripp, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Uh, and uh, this is our final morning. There are only 14 chapters in the book, so we come to uh, a conclusion of our study. Uh, I'd like to start with a couple of questions. So here's the title of our chapter, Instilling Identity with Christ and Providing Accountability. Um, here's the question for us to start with. What has been the point of, of this book? What's been the point of... Uh, I mean, there's been a theme. He's been working us through an argument. Uh, what is the point we're supposed to take out of a study like this? Um, I jumped to the very end of the chapter to give the next few things here. He tells us at the very end of this chapter what his point has been in, in writing this book. So he does us a favor here. He gives us two, right? Uh, the first point to this book is, he says, this book is first a call to live a daily ministry lifestyle rooted in God's word. So it is a general exhortation to us that there is, there is a way of conducting our lives that God is calling us to as his children. And it looks like living our lives as ministries to those around us. And he's calling us to embrace this. Uh, second, he says, this book is rooted in the belief that God has called and positioned all of his children to live as his ambassadors. And he emphasizes there, all of his children. Right? That that call to live as ambassadors of Christ is not a call given just to the elders of any given church, that that's a call that God gives in his word to every believer to live as his ambassadors. So he says a couple of things on that account. He says, uh, God's claim is on all of our time, and, and I think this is really the emphasis of the book, and each of our relationships as we serve as his representatives. Right? God has a claim on each of our relationships. They are not ours. They are his. Second, he says, God sends unfinished people to unfinished people <laughs> with the message of his grace so that he can reclaim every heart for his glory. Have you been hearing that as we've gone through these weeks? It's a great protection to the perfectionists among us and really to all of us who just struggle with the reality of our own inadequacy. Uh, it's helpful to hear him say, yeah, you are inadequate. You are unfinished. God sends people in need of change to people in, who are in need of change, and he calls them to love and serve each other. So we'll, we'll finish the morning here in an hour, um, well, 45 minutes, 
uh, by stating those goals again. We'll come back to this. Uh, What we're going to hear in this chapter specifically um, is that uh, we will live the things of this book. We will live them out to the extent that we understand two ideas, uh, two concepts properly. That is to say that we understand them biblically. There are two concepts we have to understand biblically if we're going to walk toward the things that uh, we're being exhorted to in this book. Uh, The first one is the concept of identity. And the second is the concept of accountability. So he makes a claim that goes like this. And I'm going to put his... I don't know why. I just decided to put his picture up here for the first quote. Um, He makes a claim in this book. He says, we always live out of some kind of identity. And the identities we assign ourselves powerfully influence our responses to life. As people pursue the process of lifelong change... They need to live out of a gospel identity. Right? There's sort of something he's distinguishing between there, if you, can, if you notice. Um, it's implicit, I think, at the end, that we have an identity given to us as Christians. We don't, we're not existentialists. We don't make up our, our identity or anything of the sort. We, we live, if we are children of God, we live within a gospel identity. But he also makes clear in here um, that... Um, even when, if that is the reality before God, I am able to assign myself identities that are not true to me. And if I do that, if I assign myself an identity that is not uh, what is true of me in Christ, that's only going to create suffering and difficulty and hamstring my, my desire to walk like this book is, having, is, is calling us to which means it's going to hamstring my ability to really love and serve the people around me, that God has called me to serve. If, I don't, if I'm living out of a made-up identity, right? So identity is important. So that brings us into the, the first half of this chapter where he's talking about identity. He's going to say, um, there is a difference. Can you see the one and two there? Okay. Uh, there's, a, there's a radical difference between these two statements that are coming up on the screen, all right? So this is just an example. Um, here's the first statement. I am a depressed person. What is the difference between that statement and this one? I am a child of God in Christ, and I tend to struggle with depression. Do you, do you hear some important differences between those two? Uh, does, the, does the second statement pretend that that war that's raging inside of that person isn't real? Uh, that's a really important question here. I didn't put it on the screen. There it is. I am a child of God in Christ, and I tend to struggle with depression. If, if someone says that, are they denying the reality of their battle with depression? They're not. Oh, let's dialogue for a minute, this, so you can, you can jump in here. What are some things you hear or see in the second statement that you don't hear or see in the first one? Okay. An explicit statement of identity. Mm-hmm. Do you sense anything in the second statement as a result of that? There's hope. And they've got a good parent. They've had some they've been trained to think in a certain way. 
That's not a bad point. Yeah, that, that's probably not a statement that just someone just comes up with on their own. This is a statement that comes as someone has been mentored in the reality of, of uh, being one with Christ. Okay, yeah. So in other words, it's not the focus of the sentence. It's there, but it's not the focus of the sentence. I think what you and James said, just I don't know that there's a better word to put out there than that word hope. It's, it's, not a, um, it's, not, it's still not a pretty situation. It's still not a pleasant time of life. It may not even be a pleasant uh, life. I mean, th- th- we know how what it's like to live in a fallen world. There are uh, long-term, painful battles that, that, that we, at times, are called to endure. Um, but there is hopeful expectation there. Yeah, Seth? Those are proper pictures that you're imagining there. Um, I mean, that, that brings up the question, is a believer ever alone in the things that they go through in life? So if I'm, if I'm speaking in a way that when Art Baker pictures it, I'm pictured as walking alone, then I'm speaking inappropriately, right? I am not alone. Probably both of those... <coughs> um, <laughs> um, probably both of those pictures, there's tears in the eyes of both of those people, Right? But the second one, it has someone with them and knows it. And it makes a difference to them. It doesn't take away the struggle, but it makes a fundamental difference. Because having that person with them, in that case, changes their very identity. Um, This is how uh, Tripp would characterize that second statement. Yes, I do wrestle with depression every day, but I am not alone I do not rest on my own strength and wisdom. I have come to understand that my creator and savior is also my father. I'm beginning to grasp how rich I really am because of my place in his family. And I am learning to live out of the riches that he has provided rather than the poverty of the identities I used to assign to myself. That's a big, a big statement there to just read to you. But you hear that, that idea at the end of poverty. Uh, There's a concept that that he brings up that he calls poverty identities. Uh, And he uses the illustration of someone who has come to a place where they are homeless. They're living on the street. They have no... uh, uh, And so he asks, what are... Think of that individual who's on the street, who's homeless. Uh, What are... What's a successful day in that person's life? What are the expectations for the day? Um, what are the standards by which they would get to the end of the day and say, okay, this, this day has happened successfully? Uh, the, the, they have been reduced at that point often to simply finding something to eat and finding somewhere to stay for the night, right? This is what he's describing as a poverty identity. And he says this, Many people in the midst of a struggle live as if they were spiritually homeless, which, by which he means they live the same survivalist, these are great words, survivalist, distracted, fearful, escapist, and for the moment, existence. Now let's not move on for just a second. Just 
read those, uh, that list. That this is how they come to be, to, this, this be, these become correct descriptions of their life when they're in that time. Survivalist, distracted, fearful, escapist, and for the moment. They do not think about growth and change or pursue the good things that are their inheritance as children of God. They just try to get through the day. They live as if they were poor when in fact they are amazingly rich. What do you think about that? Any, does that bring any thoughts to your mind? Yeah. It's a good way to, to portray, the, I think, what he's trying to do with the poverty identity is it fundamentally makes us extremely short-sighted, uh, extremely focused on the next 12 hours or whatever. Yeah. Uh, w- when we live like this, and I mean, I, uh, I find great conviction in reading these t- descriptions. Um, I, I, can, I can think of... It, 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 some of these temptations are always present when we're in difficult times. The, the escapist mentality, the, um, the, the survivalist attitude that we... That we, that we can take. Um, when we're in those times, what is going on in our relationship with God as our Father? Uh, how has our relationship been affected there? Um, one of the things we could say is we could say the problem in that instance then is not that we're asking too much of the Father, but that we're asking too little of the Father. We are expecting far too little in comparison to what He has promised us uh, is ours as, uh, as children of God. Tripp puts it this way. Uh, he says, we, we settle for hammering together some kind of spiritual survival with the hope that things will be better in eternity. But the Bible never presents our life on earth as meaningless time of waiting for the good stuff that comes later. The biblical model of waiting is not simply about what you will get at the end of your wait, but about about who you will become as you wait. And you can hear in that this claim that the Bible makes very clear that as we wait, as the Lord brings us through difficulty and just through the normalcy of this life, as we wait, uh, He is changing us now. He is growing us now. So one of the places that that is prevalent in this chapter is 2 Peter uh, Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it's up on the screen here. Peter says this in his introduction here. Peter says of God, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to to His own glory and excellence. Uh, By which, this is the knowledge of Him, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them, through the promises of someone who cannot lie, right? through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's a set of verses worth really spending some time thinking about um, and meditating on. You have in here this idea that as our Father, God has given His children gifts. And the result of Him giving us these gifts is that they lead us to be, it actually says, to become partakers of the divine nature. What, in the, what do you think that means? He, his gifts lead us to become partakers in, in the divine nature. Uh, 
His gifts never fail to accomplish what they are intended for. Um, And this is going to happen, he says, by freeing us from the world's corruption. These are promises that God has given to his children. And, uh, And Tripp's point here is going to be that there really are two points to take out of this. Number one, what, and what we just said, sort of the negative point, that we, we fundamentally sell ourselves short when we try to live a scrape by and try to survive um, spiritual life. That is not what God has given to his children. Um, the second point uh, to this is like that, but it's slightly different. And the difference is pretty profound. He gives an example. He says, imagine... Um, that you have inherited, you just got a phone call this morning that you have inherited $50 million, all right? It's yours, and everything has been processed, and it's in the bank, so you receive that notice. So this afternoon, you go to the bank and withdraw $10,000 and take your family to a $10,000 dinner, lavish, lavish dinner tonight in celebration of this, all right? And then um, six weeks go by, and six weeks later, uh, your wife finds, this is a man in this example, a married man, your, your wife, his wife finds that they are penny-pinching like they were before, like they always have been. She's having to, to, to do the budget, and they're trying to, there's a set amount each month, and they're barely, uh, they're barely making it, uh, making ends meet. And so she goes to her husband, and she says, well, I thought... I thought we had $50 million in the bank. Why is this, why, why is this the situation? And he says, honey, you have no idea how much of a hassle it is to get down to that bank. Right? It's always busy. Every, the, the, it's terrible traffic getting down there. Parking, it, you have to pay for parking, and it's hard to even find a spot. And when you get in, the lines are long every time. And if I make a big withdrawal, I have to put my thumbprint in. They treat me like a criminal. It's a hassle. You don't understand how much of a hassle it is to go and withdraw that money. So what is her response going to be? And he imagines her saying, Honey, we are rich. We're rich. How could you keep, how could you let anything keep you and keep us from the inheritance that we have been given. It's, it's actually ours. It's in our bank account. Uh, how are you going to um, get down to the bank? <laughs> Go down there and withdraw uh, and, and give us the life that this has granted to us. And can you see the point that he's making in giving this, this picture? If I embrace the reality of the promises that I have been given in Christ, then I'm going to pursue them I'm going to actually pursue them. I'm going to pursue the outliving of them. I'm going to pursue God with the expectation that he is actually a keeper of his promises. And that as I look to him, and as I am led by him, he is going to grow me. He's going to give me joy. He's going to transform me so that I conform. Remember what it said in this passage. I am going to become a partaker of the divine nature. That does not mean I'm going to be a god. It does mean I'm going to look like Christ. He's going to conform me into the image of Christ as we go. These are promises of God. If I live a spiritually survivalist, get through the day, nothing's ever going to be any different mentality, it's because I don't actually think that there is any inheritance 
that God has given me in his son. His timing, his ways are perfect, and I know that he has not uh, lied to me. Uh, God has promised to progressively conform our sinful hearts to the likeness of Christ our Savior. But we see it in the Bible that it's easy for us to forget who we are. Can you think of any examples of, of, uh, of, of people in Scripture, I mean, giants of the faith, who had moments of forgetting who they were? Can you think of any? Pop quiz? Bible trivia time? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Tripp gives a couple of examples that are very alike with each other, Moses and Gideon. Both of them, God, God gives promises to them and calls them to something, and both of them, the response is the same. The response is, who am I that I could do this? Who am I that I could save Israel? That's the, that's the statement that Gideon makes specifically. But Moses also says, Lord, who am I? Right? And, and God's answer to them, God's answer to the who am I question is, I am with you. That's what he says to both of them. That's who you are. You're someone who has the Lord <laughs> um, walking with them. That's God's answer to our question, who am I? And that's all that they needed to know, right? I am with you. But when you think of us now, by contrast, we know even more than those men did. We have been given explicitly in text what Peter calls these precious and very great promises, that by them we are becoming partakers of the divine nature. We have been given these things. This is our inheritance. But if we live out of a false identity, if we live out of a poverty identity, not only will we not pursue those promises, we will also be content to just survive the trials of life instead of to be grown through those trials, to learn more about God through those trials. Our expectations of what we'll be like at the end will be very minimal. Our goal will be minimal. Survive. Let me just see if I can get through this. God doesn't give it to us so we can just get through it. He has good, good, good purposes for the things he leads us through. Absolutely. Yeah. And if we're living out of this false identity, we can't do either of those two things that Romans 5 points out. Because they do have to come together. That's such, a, that's such a good point. So the, the identity that we embrace, this is what the first part of this chapter is about. The, the, it is so important to us if we are going to be able to walk in each other's lives, not just in my own private life, my own private spiritual growth, but in each other's lives, in the ways that we're being called to in this book. We cannot do that if we're living out of a false identity, one that is in conflict with the identity that God has given to us and informed us of in his word. Any final thoughts on that before we go to the second part of the chapter? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And and it has to be that way. I mean, that's a good example. It's the same thing with what we were saying about depression. Both statements, you could say in that second statement that both of those pieces of the sentence were types of identities. I do tend to struggle with depression. That is a part of, that, that's a part of who I am, but that is not fundamentally who I am. And this one informs my battle with this one. If I am a teacher, this one informs how I teach, why I teach, 
This one undergirds me when, those, when it's a dry time, when I'm, when I'm struggling. This one gives me someone to praise when things are going well. It causes me to see that this isn't because of me, but because of the goodness of God. It gives the lens for all the other identities uh, that, we, that, we, that we fill in our life. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Any other thoughts? Uh, the second part of the chapter, he shifts from identity to talking about accountability. And he, he puts a, a word with it. He talks about loving accountability. Because this is the kind of accountability that we are called to embody in, in God's word. He says, we must love people enough to do more than expose wrong, pronounce right, and walk away. Accountability requires a willingness to roll up our sleeves and get alongside people as they fight the war between sin and righteousness. So you can hear in, in that um, the emphasis on both of these words. There, there, is, there needs to be an emphasis on what we mean and the, fact, the, the idea that we really live out this first part, that, this be, that we be conducting ourselves in this loving way as we uh, as we hold one another accountable, as we walk through life with one another. Uh, but accountability is, a, is a, uh, an inescapable part of relationship, of true relationship. I, I made the, the point a few weeks ago, you know, we were talking about confrontation and, and conflict, and I made the point that I've, I have a 100% perfect record of peace with my neighbor six doors down that I've never met before. Perfect record there, right? Um, that's not that hard to do. Real relationships bring real necessities, and accountability is, is one, of those, one of those necessities. Um, okay, so th- let's look at the loving part first here. Uh, accountability, he says, is not about lying in wait to catch somebody doing wrong. The purpose of accountability is to assist people to do what is right for the long run. And it provides a presence that keeps them responsible, aware, determined, and alert that they are, uh, until they are able to be on their own. All right? So you can, see, you can see the heart of what he's describing here in these, in these bullet points. Uh, accountability is not about lying in wait to catch someone. Uh, it, it is all about assisting, like he said before, rolling up our sleeves, caring about one another enough to be involved. Uh, in, in, uh, in, in walking together toward Christ-likeness. And this must be the case because of the nature of the God that we represent, right? We represent the gospel of a redeemer who is always present with us, ever-present redeemer. And he does not just command, but he also works to enable. He doesn't just convict. He also forgives and restores, Uh, Biblical accountability is not fearful or abusive or intrusive. It is loving and sacrificial. We'll say that last uh, line, and that's trip, that's not me. Biblical accountability is not fearful, abusive, or intrusive. It is loving and sacrificial. Uh, You hear what he means by this one descriptor of loving regarding accountability. Now, if, I don't know if you're like me or not. When I, when I read that part, and then the paragraph ends, I hear that, and I, I, I felt, when I first read that, I felt a little bit confused at that moment. 
Because I thought, well, that doesn't, I mean, that's good, that's nice. That doesn't really sound like accountability. That sounds just more like encouragement, no matter what the situation is, just be, being, uh, being patient, being forgiving. It sounds like encouragement. How is that accountability? Um, anyone else feeling that? As Put this list of um, not fearful, not intrusive, uh, forgiving, restoring, Maybe it's just me. But it was helpful to me. I kind of thought that and then kept reading and realized, well, he's breaking these two things into two. He's breaking this into two pieces here. So let's notice what he says about accountability itself. What, what is biblical accountability? What is it that we're supposed to be doing in this loving way? Because he hasn't actually gotten there yet. Um, whether what we're doing is accountability or not depends on the definition of, of, of what that word means. Uh, and what he's going to say here, to me, is really important because of how much it clarifies the reality of individual responsibility. So he's going to say this. The person who makes accountability work is always the person being held accountable. Not the one holding someone accountable. The one being held accountable. The person who makes accountability work is always the person being held accountable. And so he can put these things up on the right-hand side. You can say accountability is not about forcing someone to obey or chasing someone who is running. That's not what accountability is for. Accountability gives loving structure, guidance, encouragement, and warning to someone who is fully committed to the change God is working in their life. That is the crucial part of the right-hand side of this screen that when that is in place, now we are able to do accountability in a way that is truly biblically loving, patient. That person does not see an accountable presence in their life as scary or intrusive, and he or she doesn't run or hide from it. Rather, they are glad to know that as, uh, as another stands with them, God is standing with them. Right? Um, when you talk about... Yeah, go ahead. Yes. You, you, you are one slide ahead of us, we, we, but it's important to, to uh, if we didn't get to that slide, there would be a gaping hole, so I'm glad that you're, <laughs> that you're noticing that. Yes. Um, what he's distinguishing between really here is the, the person who, is, um, uh, who, who desires to grow in conformity to Christ and the person who we could just call a runner. They're, just, they're running away, and he says the runner doesn't need accountability the runner needs rebuke. You see how he's distinguishing? The runner doesn't need accountability. The runner needs rebuke. Accountability is to help those who are committed to change. And I think that might be a better way to put it than uh, when he says things like, um, where is that here? Fully committed. Uh, who is ever fully committed? Uh, that, so putting that word in there. But he takes it out in the other place. There you go. Yeah, dead people are fully committed. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, um, Dennis's question raises, you see in the second bullet point on the right, what accountability gives. He, he fleshes each of those out, structure, guidance, encouragement, and warning. Um, and this, this is really helpful. It was helpful to me uh, seeing what we're saying, that kind of accountability in that context, when we are in this place together, 
What, what is it that God does for us as we obey him in these ways? Uh, how, uh, this is an explanation of how we can be helpful to other people when they're in that willing state of mind. Uh, the first thing he said is that it provides structure. Uh, change, and we know this is true, change seems easier to discuss than to actually achieve, right? If I am, if I am open and willing, I see the need that I have to grow in a certain way, but by the very nature of the case, this represents doing something I've never done before, right? Walking in a way that I never have walked before. That's, that's confusing. I, what do I do? Um, it's easier to discuss than actually to achieve. So accountability provides an outside system of structure. Down to things like do these things during this time period. Some of these can become very practical um, counsel from someone outside of me giving me wisdom to put some things in place. I'm willing to change, but I'm not sure what that looks like. Uh, Accountability can provide structure Uh, that can be immensely helpful, especially for someone attempting something for the first time. Accountability can provide guidance. Often a person will want to do what is right, but won't be sure how to do it. This is related, I think, to structure. Um, It's a great benefit having someone to give a where, when, and how uh, to to these steps in a new direction. Um, Accountability provides assistance. There are going to be times when we are afraid to make changes that we know we need to make. It's it's a scary thing, and we need someone to help us do it. So he even brought up an example. um, This is quite specific, but the notion of someone knowing that they need, part of what they need to change, what God is calling them to change, is going to require um, confession or uh, asking for forgiveness of someone. And they, they don't know if they can do it, but maybe if they have someone to come with them in that, in that encounter, they'll have the strength to, to do that sort of thing. It could look, it could look uh, a great number of different things, but that was the example that he, that he gave. Um, encouragement is another thing that's given. When we faithfully... Uh, live with each other in these ways where we're providing accountability. He says people are often tempted to question their commitments or even to quit, and they need someone they trust alongside of them. And that leads to the fifth thing that he says accountability provides, which is warning. And, of course, Dennis just left the room, so he doesn't get to hear this part. But uh, sometimes people confess their need to change, but they begin to rebel against it when they realize the cost involved and the work involved, in that moment they need to be warned of the consequences of disobedience and rebellion. That they, like Galatians 6 says, they will reap what they sow. They need to be warned in that. Now that is a type of rebuke. Remember he said the runner doesn't need accountability. The runner needs rebuke. There will be times where the one who was willing and who was in, who's being uh, open to accountability will have times of needing rebuke themselves, right? It's not like rebuke is not a part of loving accountability. But if all that's ever happening in that relationship is rebuke, that's not accountability. You've got a runner on your hands. You've got someone just living in rebellion, right? So this is the distinction that he's making. It was, this has been helpful to me. Um, please do jump in with any comments as, as you'd like. We're getting toward the, toward the end of the chapter here. And let me just repeat again. Did I put it on the... 
No, I didn't. Uh, the two goals he said this whole book is here for. We, we opened with these, right? The first is uh, that this book is, first of all, a call to live a daily ministry lifestyle rooted in God's word. This is what the call is for us. This is what we're asking ourselves to consider. Um, is my life a, a, is my life lived as a conscious uh, daily ministry lifestyle? Um, and second is this uh, claim he's making from Scripture, and I think he's done a very good job of making it, um, that uh, God has called and positioned all of us to live as his ambassadors. He's placed us where he's placed us on purpose, and he expects that our relationships would have, that, uh, would, would have this result as we're living with one another. Uh, as we're living amidst unbelievers, there are expectations that our life would reflect the truth and glory of the gospel. As we're living among believers, there are expectations that they would find rest and strength and encouragement and accountability because God has placed us in their lives. This is God's expectation on us. Remember the two quotes we started with. God's claim is on all of our time and each of our relationships as we serve as his representatives. Um, He he ends with some closing thoughts. Uh, He gives eight truths that we've seen, and I'm not putting them all up here. I just plucked a few highlights for the sake of time. Uh, Here's one. Ministry is not an activity that takes place outside our primary relationships. I'm curious what you thought about that. Um, He doesn't mean, I mean, this requires us to take a certain definition of ministry, right? He doesn't mean that outside of our personal relationships, we don't represent Christ. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that um, the sorts of things we're talking about here, which involve being involved in each other's lives meaningfully, being willing to roll up our sleeves, being willing sometimes even to say things that are hard to hear. He says this is a calling that fundamentally takes place within our primary relationships. We have not been given in the same way to every believer on the face of the planet as we have been given to each other here. Right? He's not called us. um, I can't pray for a great number of brothers and sisters by name in other countries, because I don't know their names. I've never met them. I don't know their situations. But there are some people that God has placed in, my, uh, in a specific sphere around me. And when he did that, obligations came with it. I think that's the idea he's getting out of that. What do you think about that statement? Anything you'd want to add to that? Or clarifications you'd want to, to make to the statement? Yeah, Mike. That's, that's how I'm reading him, with a, with a specific definition of ministry. I think if, you, if that's not what he means, or if we don't do that, then we're kind of in trouble, because it would almost suggest that we don't have any obligation to the wider world, and that's clearly not true. We're commissioned to go out into the world, and, so, and that's, it is important that we keep that clear. But if, if he's meaning in that what I'm what I'm what I want him to mean, <laughs> then I think he, this is a very helpful clarification to us. Right, yeah. One of the consequences of that, too, is if, if we don't maintain that distinction, well, in other words, so much of what we've been called to in this book really requires that. Things become inappropriate at a certain level of distance, right? You know what I mean? 
And now we start getting into a, a place where we are pursuing and speaking into situations that are kind of none of our business, in a sense. Um, we could do that. We could do this inappropriately in our own spheres. We could we could really uh, dig and meddle and really turn into gossips or this sort of thing in a way that's inappropriate as well. But there is clearly an obligation that comes with our close relationships as Christians, and that that kind of pushes against the the common way we do relationships in this society. Um, we can have fun together, but there's but privacy and. Uh, you're you and I'm me. We don't. There's no accountability. There's no. That's that's the typical mo, and that's not what the Bible commands of us. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Does that bring up any other thoughts or comments? Yeah. I was really thankful for those sections like that. Because we can, we can tell how easily we can mess this up. <laughs> and I can think of times when I have. And it, it, yeah. Yeah. Thank God there's room for forgiveness and patience. Um, here's another uh, highlight that I'm plucking out of those final paragraphs. He says, we must not confuse insight with heart and life change. I don't know how much I've, I've heard this in the book so far. I'm, I was so glad that he put this in here. Um, acquiring biblical insight is a necessary part of the process, but is not in itself change. Do you hear the point that he's making? Uh, our goal for one another is not simply that we would come to correct insights about the truth, about what, what is right. We, I can come to an insight and then not change. And if that's happened to me, uh, that is not the, uh, uh, that's not the goal. And we, we, we just can't let ourselves confuse insight with actual heart change. Heart change com- produces itself in the real world, in our living, in our speaking, right? And that's an important, I think that's an important distinction to, to make there. Um, being an instrument of change, he says, means helping people do what God calls them to do. So this is still on this, this last point here. Being an instrument of change means helping people do what God calls them to do by clarifying responsibility, offering loving accountability, and reminding them of their identity in Christ. So this is the goal that we all have for ourselves and we have for one another as we're going through life. Not just to think more correctly, but that that thinking would flow out into our living. Um, he, he closes with this, and I'm going to kind of close this with this too. I laughed at first when I heard the first part of this because this is a thick book. We've been doing this for 14 weeks. He says, I am hit with the utter simplicity of biblical personal ministry. <laughs> Does it seem simple? I, again, just like ministry, we're going to we're going to put a certain definition on his word simple there. Let me keep reading. I'm hit with the utter simplicity of biblical personal ministry. Here's what he means. Not that it's easy to do. It is not, here's what he means is, it is not a secret technology for the intervention elite, but a simple call to every one of God's children to be part of what God is doing in the lives of others. It's a great way to, boil. That's, that's the sense in which this is simple. All we're being called to is to be a part of God's work in each other's lives. 
How do I flesh that out? That's challenging. Am I going to mess it up? Yeah. But the call is to really love each other, to really be involved in each other's lives and involved in what God is doing, to recognize that God intends us to be his instruments, instruments in his hands. And he ends the book with, with, a, with an image of, of a canvas and paintbrushes, right? Uh, and so he asks the question, are, are we soft brushes in his hands? As God, paints his canva- his, as God paints his glory onto canvas, he says, a hard, dried-out brush doesn't pick up the paint well and mars the surface it was meant to beautify. Now, it's a reminder of what we said toward the beginning of the book, that ministry is unavoidable. You are ministering to every single person that is in your life, that you come into contact with in your spheres. You're ministering to all of them. You cannot help it. The question is, in what direction am I ministering? The people that I love. It puts the urgency on us because we, I'm going to do it. It's going to happen. I can do it away from Christ-likeness or I can actually intentionally move them or seek to move them toward him. In what direction am I ministering the people I love? If we accept that it is inescapable, and that we will be held accountable for it. Let's do a little 10-second pause there. We will be held accountable for how we have ministered to those that God has put in our spheres. If we accept those truths, then we have taken the first steps in this direction of submitting our relationships to the one who, in reality, owns them. And that's the final slide here is in big print. Christ owns your relationships. There's probably a number of ways to sum up this book in one sentence, but that may not be a bad one to to end with. Let us be reminded from this study that Jesus Christ, our King, is the owner of the relationships that he has given us and will be held accountable for them. And he has equipped us abundantly to live out those relationships in a way that brings him glory. He has equipped us. We have a rich inheritance with promises attached to it. So let's embrace those promises. Let's pray to God for discernment and wisdom and and courage. And let's love one another. This is the call of the book. And I'm so thankful that we have been able to go through it together. It's been a long ride. Thank you guys for being along in the journey. Uh, and next week, we don't have Sunday school because of uh, Labor Day. And then we come back to Frame's Doctrine of God. Remember, we are in the year, our goal is to know God better and to live that knowledge of God out better. So we just finished a portion of Frame that talked about the reality of sin and suffering and, and uh, the sovereignty of God in it. That's why we went through this study. In light of that necessary reality, how should we live with each other? Now we come back to the next portion of of uh, coming to know God better. And that will be a, uh, uh, that'll pick up the week after next week. So uh, let me close this in prayer and we'll be finished. Father, we, we again give you thanks. Lord, we can, see, uh, we can see your loving kindness, your fatherliness to us as you, as you just over and over refuse to leave us to ourselves. You continue to sanctify us, to convict us by your spirit, but then to remind us of the forgiveness we have in Christ, to make us more grateful creatures. You continue to give us teaching like uh, what we are going through, 
to further equip us to share your love with those that you've put around us. And we thank you for these things. Lord, I pray that these thoughts would flow into our worship service, that we would sing to you from hearts full of praise and thankfulness, and that we would submit to your word preached uh, as people who are hungry for it, because we see that our life, uh, our, our life is there. Thank you, Lord, for not holding yourself back from us. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.